This podcast is rated M for Mature by the Outer National Council of Fellows. Babies, consider yourselves advised. Welcome to the rebooted Game Stories Reloaded, our very first episode focused on the stories written by fans of the video games. So, uh, this take now, um, we're just going to be reading short stories to you that are from the community uh, or from us. This episode is definitely just from us (laughs) because we haven't told the community. But yeah, uh, the format for today's episode, uh, for those unfamiliar with it, which would be everybody but me, uh, would be we're going to listen to a story, and then we're going to have a comment section afterward. Um, In this case, it's just me and Chris today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll often have guest authors if they wrote something, or maybe just somebody who's a fan of the video game for the month. Wow, I haven't even talked about the fact that this is monthly and that I, we're doing a different video game each month. <laughs> <laughs> the more you know. We're going to have a monthly schedule that we release later uh, that will show us what games to expect each month. This will be a tool uh, to inform the community for authors that might want to write a story based on a game. Uh, What we're doing with this podcast is each month we'll focus on a recent or new release um, in the video game world, not the movie world, although that may happen somewhere down the line if things get sparse, but I doubt they will. And then we will be looking for stories based in a similar genre as that video game of the month or maybe same setting. Or with a lot of the same tropes, something like that. Uh, It's really the purpose of this podcast is to give people some stories related to the games that they're enjoying and just immerse them more in these types of worlds. Because obviously, if you like that game, you probably also like things like that game. Um, Also... Hopefully, when we get a real community rolling on this, uh, maybe we could even have like comments on the podcasts suggesting other forms of media related to that game of the month. So since the game this month is Red Dead Redemption, uh, the idea would be maybe we'd have some people in the comments section of the podcast or on the Facebook page uh, recommending Western-style movies or maybe some Western books um, or other Western video games. For instance... The, God, for instance, on the PS2. That, uh, <laughs> Red Dead Revolver. Oh, man, the original. <laughs> right. Or, uh, for instance, that uh, online game that came out very shortly before the new Red Dead 2 came out. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm, possibly. 
Not entirely. Uh, all right, yeah, it was some like very poorly crafted, uh, just uh, alpha game, like early access game that didn't even really have uh, an online infrastructure, so you would be playing all on your own, and like a uh, MMO style environment. That lacked any NPCs. <laughs> oh man, so it was, so it's Fallout seventy six. Yeah, yeah, it was basically Fallout seventy six. If nobody was playing it, uh, I mean, no one yeah. is playing it. So, <laughs> well, fans still get upset about things that Bethesda does with the game. So I'm guessing somebody's playing it. But uh, yeah, poor bastard. Um, <laughs> poor fellas. But. We're not focused on that. We're focused on you, people who love Red Dead Redemption 2 probably the most right now. Uh, So without much further ado, let's go ahead and get into the first story. Uh, We're going to wet your palate with Chris's magnificent... uh, What accent is it? Oh man, it's like a southern kind of accent. (laughs) <laughs> it's one of the southern accents. One yeah, of them. That's exactly it. Uh-huh. Uh, so enjoy, and uh, we'll be here when you return from his stunning uh, experience. Would performance. It be an experience? It's an experience, a performance, performance, and a tale by the campfire. It is really wonderful. Okay, have fun. Well, howdy there, y'all. My name is Chris from the mountains of Colorado. And today, I'm going to be bringing y'all a story about the West. Now, this is going to be possibly a two-part story. So, let's dive in to the tale of the Badlands Bandits. Our story begins as many tales of the great wide west often do, with the jingling of spurs and the thunder of a galloping horse. These two sounds were all that Wyatt could perceive during this evening ride. It was especially strange that he could only focus on hearing these sounds, considering that he was renowned in his crew as having the sharpest pair of eyes west of the Mississippi, His stronger perceptive abilities were not impaired due to a decline in his health. In fact, he was a healthy 26-year-old man of an average body type, not husky, yet lacking the toned muscles of a hard-working laborer. Wyatt was certainly still in his prime. No, the likely cause of his blind, hard-of-hearing ride would be the shouts and bullets of his former brotherhood compadres flying past him faster than an alcoholic downs his shots of whiskey. Now, a shootout wouldn't usually phase a man such as Wyatt. He'd seen his fair share of close calls during his time with the Ringley gang, fighting off rival posses in the law during his escapades. However, getting shot at by a bunch of guys that you've had the pleasure of eating and living with for the past five years really gets the adrenaline pumping like nothing else. Wyatt was so overcome during his escape from his compatriots that he'd barely registered when the gang finally decided to stop trying to catch up to him and his much faster horse. 
It also took him a minute to notice that he had slumped off his horse and landed against the wall of an abandoned homestead out on the rural plains. He sat against the wall for a while, breathing heavily as the sun began to set over the horizon. What the devil did you just do, Wyatt? The tired cowboy said to himself. As the sun disappeared, he slowly blinked, struggling to keep an eye out for any pursuers from the Ringley gang that might have followed him this far into the middle of nowhere. Darkness fell, and Wyatt couldn't fight to stay awake any longer, and he gave in to the strong lull of sleep. Upon waking up from his little nap, Wyatt rushed over to his trusty horse saddlebag and ripped out the cause of all his recent troubles. A half of a map said to lead to the famed city of gold, El Dorado. He had taken it from the leader of the Ringley gang, one Arnold Ringley, because he felt the gang was heading in the wrong direction. They were not the men that he once knew, as they were now driven by greed and violence rather than just survival and freedom. He believed that it was his duty to break away from the husks of the men he once called friends, and deemed it essential that he take one of the parts of the map to keep the immense wealth out of their hands for as long as he could. Lord only knows what men like that would do with an endless stream of wealth at their disposal he thought. Wyatt knew that his gang would be out searching for him and his stolen piece of the map. So going out to any of the towns in the area was out of the question for the time being. Luckily enough for our cowboy friend, the homestead was still in pretty decent shape for being abandoned for so far away from the rest of society. Wyatt took some time to gather himself and inspected the house thoroughly. There was still a decent amount of furniture in the house, and despite some areas of creek floorboards and rotten wood from rainfall, the house seemed to be a miracle find, as it would be able to provide an ample amount of shelter for Wyatt in the coming days of recuperation. In an attempt to reason out why some abandoned house even existed, Wyatt thought to himself, These folks must have run out of, been run out of by some natives or the government recently. God only knows which one of them is worse than the other nowadays. Oh well, looks like I'll have to spend the next few nights here for, or weeks, for now, uh, lucky me. Both of these possibilities made Wyatt feel anxious. He had a lot of bad blood between himself and both the Native American tribes and the U.S. government. The government is the initial reason that Wyatt was forced into a life crime in the first place. Due to his lack of knowledge in the rights to land, the home that he had established himself was ripped away from him, leaving him destitute on the streets. Another unknown traveling vagabond scraping out a living on this brutal frontier. To survive this injustice, Wyatt was forced to take to a life of petty crime, pickpocketing here and there, with his quick hands and sharp eyes for easy marks and valuable trinkets. After some time of this, 
he decided to try his hand at one of the most popular gambling pastimes of shooting bottles with both speed and precision. As it turns out, Wyatt was quite the dead-eye with the revolver, and one of the fastest men around on the draw. Through his skills and the town's widespread love of gambling, Wyatt had managed to claw his way back to a meager living. It was one fateful day of partaking in a shooting contest when he was challenged by a man wearing almost all black and decorated with silver pieces. The mystery man proved to be just as fast and just as accurate as Wyatt. Their wager inevitably came to a standstill, and impressed with Wyatt's skill, the man in black finally introduced himself as none other than Arnold Ringlick one of the famed outlaws of the western frontier. Ringley had decided that it was time that they upped the ante on their bet. If Wyatt wins, then he would be given all of the silver that Ringley had on him, plus another $500, and his personalized revolver, which had inlays made out of gold. However, if Ringley won, then he stated that Wyatt would have to make an oath to be bound to him and the Ringley gang until the day one of them died. Well, how do you know I just won't run off in the middle of the night when y'all are sleeping? The young Wyatt asked. You very well could, boy, Ringley replied. But the way I see it, I would already have proved myself a better shot than you. So you would likely be dead before you could cry for your mama if you tried to cheat me like that. Besides, I hold the belief that if a man's word can't be trusted for nothing anymore, then there ain't no point in this whole taming the Wild West thing. So I'm inclined to trust you on your word of honor. Why had I had Ringley's silver and his beautiful gun with the promise of an incredible $500 fluttering around in his mind? All right, Mr. Ring, Arnold Ringley, the cowboy finally said. I'd be a damned fool to pass your offer off. I'm in. That's the spirit, boy, Ringley shouted as he slapped Wyatt on the back. The two took their positions, and the bell was rung to start the match. Like a flash, Ringley took out his revolver and shot all six bottles within the blink of an eye before Wyatt could even pull out his own gun from his holster. Ringley flourished with a quick spin of his revolver before sliding it back into his holster with ease. Ringley looked over at Wyatt. Well, boy, looks like your life is all mine now. And so began Wyatt's relationship with the Ringley gang. While it was by no means a small posse, it also did not have the reputation or the manpower to be more notorious on the frontier which seemed to suit everyone just fine. However, aside from robbing the odd passerby here and there, the biggest challenge about being part of the Ringley gang was that you had to live on the outskirts of civilization, and the other, stronger gangs had already taken all the best spots to hold up in. That had left the gang open for attacks from the Native American tribes that dotted the area. Wyatt grew to harbor deep hatred towards the natives. They would always attack under the cover of night, and every time they did, they would always manage to slit the throat of one of the sleeping gang members before the rest could even be warned and woken up to drive them off. 
Wyatt, I'd think, as lucky stars, that he was never one of those unfortunate souls that drifted off into dreamland too close to a bush. The official, the brutal efficiency of the natives caused Wyatt to fear them, and their attacks only occurring after dark drew out his eye for them. One day, in retaliation for a particularly crippling attack on the gang, Ringley boys hunted down one of the tribe's locations and exacted their revenge for their fallen friends. In this camp, Arnold Ringley had managed to find the map to El Dorado, a map that had been split into two pieces, and if put together would be able to lead them to the promised city of gold and ultimate power. The idea of finding the gold and taking it all for his gang and himself so that they could rule the West overcame every fiber of Ringley's being, and that of all of his men. All of them, save for Wyatt. Wyatt was forced to watch as his friends devolved into a frenzy of cruelty and madness to find El Dorado, and in so, in a last-ditch effort to save the memory of the men that they once were, Wyatt stole one half of the map to keep it out of the clutches of Ringley. Even if it would eventually lead to his death, Wyatt would never give up the map to let the one the once idealistic Arnold devolve further into madness from his gold fever. And that is how our cowboy ended up here, riding out and hiding out in this abandoned homestead. Hunting for food and the morning and sleeping inside the rundown house in the evening. He would have had to once again scrape out a living from the harsh frontier until he decides upon his next course of action. And that, my friends, is the end of part one of the Badlands Bandits. I hope y'all enjoyed our little store time here by the campfire. I hope y'all have a great rest of your day. I bid you adieu. All right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wonderful story, Chris. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the way we're going to work this now is uh, we're going to have ten minutes of a uh, kind of discussion in the first three uh, are going to be my reactions to the story. Uh, if we had somebody else with us, it would be, you know, Combined their reactions, reactions. too. <laughs> but yeah, you can also bounce your own reactions if uh, I have not much to talk about. But of course, I do. I, I have so much to talk about and appreciate here. So sweet. Uh, <laughs> first of all... Uh, I noticed kind of a homage to Red Dead Redemption, uh, the part where you go over to Mexico and you start shooting bottles with that old guy who's supposed to be like a model, uh, uh, just western gunslinger. Yeah. You had the bottle shooting. (laughs) (laughs) I was a big fan. Big fan. Um, although I didn't quite understand at the end there was the bet for the protagonist to shoot the bottles quicker. Yeah, so, like, the idea, I I don't know if I made it too clear in the story in retrospect, but um, essentially it was, like, uh, 
each group, like each person has like six bottles, like one bottle for each bullet in their gun. And like the, the idea is whoever shoots the most fastest would win the bet. The most fastest. Well, like the most That's bottles, funny. comma, fastest. Yeah. Ah, I see. The spoken I word see. is difficult. Yeah, so it was a it was a race to shoot the most bottles in the shortest amount of time. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Or not even that, but like to shoot the most bottles out of the six that you're both shooting at. Yeah, it's not like shortest amount of time, I guess. Well, like if you, it's like if uh, both of them were to shoot at an equally like or shoot equally accurately, so they all hit their six bottles. Whoever would get them first would be the winner. Ah, okay, okay. Because, yeah, you described uh, the gang leader is knocking out his six bottles, and at least the way I heard it, uh, there wasn't description of the other six bottles. But, uh, I don't know, I might have heard that wrong. Nah, I'm pretty sure I just didn't describe it well enough. (laughs) <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Um, yeah, uh, that was a lot of fun. I was surprised by the fact that this is a two-parter, and the fact that you said it might be a two-parter at the beginning, and yeah. I'm like, might be. <laughs> yeah, so the idea for a two-parter thing was, uh, so this uh, story session here is for Red Dead Redemption, right? So mm. I kind of want to have something I can continue off of to go into Red Dead Redemption 2 if we ever decide to tackle that. Uh-huh. So I would uh, continue this story here for that session. Ah, I see. Um, yeah, so if I wasn't clear enough before, this is actually encompassing Red Dead Redemption and its entirety, one and two. Oh, really? This podcast. Ooh, but, even I got that wrong. <laughs> but uh, the other sticking point is, while these are monthly podcasts, I am allowing the possibility, if we've got a lot of submissions, to make like middle podcasts, like stick it in two weeks after one of the regular monthly, have like a 1.5 mm-hmm. in the middle or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that could always be something that works in there, mm-hmm. or you could always work on this on the side, and it would be a bonus tacked on to the end of an episode or something like that, especially if we have short stories for the month or something like that. Yeah. Short, short stories. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, uh, El Dorado. Mm-hmm. I was thinking kinda... of those Western, uh, legends. Yeah, got me kind of uh, eager for a treasure hunt, and sadly we didn't get the actual treasure hunt so much as the setup this Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, building up that hype for the next part. (laughs) So, the next part, you kind of sounded like there would only be two parts maximum. Would we expect to go through an entire treasure hunt in the next part? Oh, yeah. The next part I'm imagining is going to be, like, that one big adventure thing that, like, culminates at the end. 
And then, uh-huh. like, if there is a third part ever, it would likely be, like, the like an epilogue to it and, like, the aftermath of said treasure hunt. Mm. See, I was wondering if it would, like, end up being, uh, like, him settling down <laughs> with Bonnie McFarlane. <laughs> oh, man. Being a uh, part cow, ranging those, yeah. those cattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this will be real confusing if people who start listening to these stories haven't listened to our previous series. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep up that continuity. We're like animes. We, if you don't watch one episode, you're completely lost for the rest of the the rest of the series. Uh, uh, they're also wondering where David is if they got that. <laughs> <laughs> what? What happened? So many changes. <laughs> David died. Pretty much. Sorry to tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he ate a cow, and uh, it was mad. Was, it was quite an angry cow. Well, not only that, it was regarded as an act of cannibalism. This too. Um, and he was put to death. Yeah, it's rather unfortunate, but tis the way of the land. <laughs> and let us let us be clear. Uh, Quoting Obama here, but uh, let us be clear: uh, this was not a uh, messy execution. It was a uh, standardized. Uh, he got the uh, lethal injection, so it's very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, too much? Eh, not I mean, just enough, really. <laughs> Maybe not even enough. <laughs> Maybe too little. <laughs> They they did give him tacos for his last supper. Mm-hmm. Well, so it was quite so that generous. Was a fitting, that was a fitting send-off. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't ask for him, but they knew he wanted them. Unfortunately, again, they were beef tacos, <laughs> and he got a second count of cannibalism. So, mm-hmm. so there's no kinda... way out of that one. <laughs> he was damned. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, kind of thing. Because uh, <laughs> he was dying anyway, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, what Did you have any inspirations for this story? Yeah, so uh, the abandoned homestead thing, I kind of uh-huh. got that from uh, watching one of those Western movies called The Searchers. Um, where they kind of have a little house on the prairie kind of thing, and it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere, like there's nothing else in sight. Um, And also I got the idea for Wyatt, uh, like, disliking Native Americans from that movie as well. Um, Because in that movie, essentially, one of their uh, kids get kidnapped by a tribe, and the whole story is about them going and finding her. So... Got Similar to that, like, where the natives come in the night and take people, kill people, that kind of thing, and it sparks a whole whole adventure to go off of. Mm. So it's not just racism. No, not just racism. Well, <laughs> uh, there, there's Which... a sprinkling of racism in there, because right. Western racism was a thing, can't deny that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. not entirely yeah, driven yeah. by race. Right, it's motivated by the terrible deeds that uh, some 
Native Americans committed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, would be mirrored as well in the transgressions that basically everybody else did during history. So <laughs> yeah. There's really no one that can take the high road in this. Everyone's done horrible things to another group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's really just a, a matter of somebody not being a party to that and feeling like they were personally wronged and yeah just kind of uh <laughs> you were you were evil by proxy because of what everybody else of your group had done before you just yeah. kind of a self-perpetuating uh problem huh wow we're really delving into it really delving into the shit right now mm-hmm. <laughs> more so than i expected to but uh all right um so yeah i was i was pleased by this story i was pleased by your accent the entire time oh, uh, thank you <laughs> well, i do try you, to uh, get my accent on point <laughs> was that uh method acting where did you get that accent oh man that's just uh like when I was a kid, I used to do a bunch of, like, Cowboys vs. Indian things with my sister and talk Southern. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much that's just me doing my best Southern accent. <laughs> Perfect. Loved it. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and move on to the next one, to my story. And, unfortunately... Uh, I tried out a southern accent as well. Um, I don't know whether it was that successful, and in fact, it probably was not. Um, I also was trying a lot of voice acting in there, more than I probably wanted to do, and the voice acting was very inconsistent, (laughs) I think I would say. Uh, One character, multiple characters didn't have the same kind of voice idea of, like, all the way of through. The I don't know if you had that problem uh, listening to it, Chris, but... Uh, uh, no, it sounded pretty pretty good for what it was, to be honest. I don't really have oh, any complaints okay. about the voice acting. I rather enjoyed it. Oh, wow. Well, I hope that everybody else does, too. Um, we'll be talking about it when we come back. Muddied Waters by Jacob Nickel Sloshing echoed from deep beneath him. Somewhere in that dark mire laid a piece of the man, lost from the world outside. He looked warily at the beams of light that pierced the darkness before him, reminders of a world outside he would soon return to. As he studied this frame of light, He worried about what might await him on his return, that nothing more was out there than in here. His breath pushed aside the corrupted air around him as he sighed, only for waves of stench to fold back over him and into his lungs. (sighs) Yum. Planks groaned underneath as he found the way to his feet and pulled dirt-smeared trousers tight to his waist. Turning to look at what he'd left behind, 
The man thought about how it reminded him of life in the West. Hot and tan, the shit bobbed in a soup of piss and blood left by the residents of a hopeful town west of the Mississippi. Blowing the door wide open rewarded the man with bountiful sunshine and warm, dry wind. Stone water lay before him, once his destination and now his refuge since leaving Boston for a warmer, richer life. His dreams of adventure, land, and gold told him any place west would be better than the cold, crowded life of Massachusetts. Unfortunately, the gold ran out before he got anywhere near it, and the land soon became apparently dour. He decided Stonewater might hold enough of the adventure he still craved, and so he settled there. It was as good as any a western shithole he'd seen. While riding his horse through the crags and crevices surrounding the town had given his skin a glowing caramel color, it had never quite satisfied his cravings for adventure, so... He'd given in to the routine of drinking through the afternoon and waiting for something different to happen. The saloon doors squealed on their hinges as the town's doctor passed outside. Inside, the saloon buzzed with activity. Men eager to make a week's worth in wages gathered around a wide table playing poker, while others leaned heavily against the bar sipping watered-down whiskey from dirt-rimmed glasses. A few women paced warily through the chairs and men arranged haphazardly about the main space, neither too eager to draw attention to themselves or too thrilled about being ignored. The bar's owner routinely checked his stock of glasses, considerably fewer than in the crates he'd shipped by rail to this town many years ago. Most people trying to keep a quiet conversation found themselves being interrupted by an over-friendly drunk, flirty courtesan, or the probing eye of the barkeep ensuring you weren't snatching his fine china. The man tipped his glass back, the warm flow of liquid on his tongue mirroring the regret he often felt in coming here. A beast of habit, he never learned that the drinks here made you wish you'd saved your pennies for some real nourishment. The monotony of the town had a habit of making one drink out of sheer boredom. It's also why so many men took these roaming women upstairs, uttering unintelligible murmurs as their legs wobbled up the steps, almost falling on the women they'd call victims. The women, of course, preferred it this way. The less the men remembered, the easier the money. He remembered thinking how much he hated it. A couple years ago, he would have felt empathetic towards these women, as though they were damsels carried off in the arms of a monster. He remembered the hate he felt for the men, how he'd 
wanted to slit their throats and gouge out their eyes. Memories of how he'd specifically wanted to perform the mutilations in that order made him chuckle. He couldn't help feeling foolish and wondering how eye removal would inconvenience a dead man. He looked to the bar, intent on refilling his glass, when he saw a woman leaned against the bar and smiling at him. He looked away sheepishly, assuming she must have done the same, then rose from his seat to head towards the opposite end of the bar. An empty glass clanked on the wooden counter as the man waited impatiently for the barkeep's attention to return to actual business. While waiting for his refill, the man reflected on his days in the bank. As a teller, he'd solved the problems of every waiting customer and hardly ever faced a line longer than two people, let alone kept a customer waiting to concern himself with the safety of company property. The way he saw it, this man was a clumsy owner and a poor waiter. Still, bad as it seemed, the man reckoned the money that was made here had to be a fortune, and that anyone who helped the busy barkeep would probably receive a fair share. Always a man of opportunity, he considered how to draw the barkeep's gratitude and coin. Visions of vigilante justice swirled in his head. The man imagined two other men, partners in crime, snatching shot glasses and stuffing them in the slits of their jackets. As they stood to leave, he would brush by them, jostling their dusters and jolting a glass loose, enough to send it crashing to the floor. He'd point to the shards dotting the floor, then raise his revolver to unload on the thieves. Of course, the prize of Saving a small glass or two probably didn't match the cost of cleaning blood from the floor and walls. Nor did it outweigh the fear and execution imposed on the saloon. He thought about it, then decided that all these men had nowhere else to go. The next town was forty miles away, and their booze was no better than here. Still... Without a badge, this uh, heroic act would stand as a higher act of crime than the initial theft which triggered it. His thoughts changed then to more honorable aspirations of humble employment with the barkeep, as bartender or waiter, perhaps. The man's idea turned sour as he remembered his status as the only tolerable customer. He'd rather be forced to wait half an hour for piss in his cup than clean tobacco from the bottom of a glass. His thoughts were interrupted by a soft voice asking, Sir, did you need something? As the man's gaze returned to the world around him, he saw the woman he'd shared eye contact with earlier now standing beside him. His hand twitched and he noticed a bit of a pull as he looked down to see her hand resting on top of his. He quickly pulled his hand away as he stared at her, quizzically. I'm sorry. 
I didn't mean to frighten you. An expression of concern held firm on the young woman's attractive face. Curly, dark hair reached past the shoulders of a frilly blue dress. He'd not noticed her as a regular, but he'd never taken much time getting to know the prostitutes. Perhaps she was nothing more than that, but he reckoned the lines of her face were lighter and her age must be shorter than the experienced women who ambled about the bar like berries ripe for picking. Perhaps, he thought again, this woman was more than that. Perhaps she was innocent. The idea began growing in his mind as the woman's eyes fluttered back from the floor to meet his sheepish gaze. My name's Polly. I'm new around here, so I can't help you with too much. It's rather silly of me to have asked. I suppose I'm searching for someone who's more lost than I am. She giggled at that, and the man noticed her laugh was softer than the women that normally filled the bar. It was nice. Sorry, ma'am. I'm not quite the stranger you think I am. Oh. She seemed disappointed. Or was it confused? Don't get the wrong idea, miss. I don't mean to say I'm one of the regulars or anything. I mean, I do, uh, I do drink here often, and I favor that table over there. Uh, it isn't much, but it is my hideout. With every explanation, the man felt further from seeming approachable to pretty Miss Polly. If he were to honestly relate the two of them, he wouldn't find much to go on. He, the drunken, dirty cowboy, and she, the prim and petite lady. She seemed a world away. Not that I have anything to hide, but I just don't like to mingle with the others here. I'm not like them. At least, I don't think like them. Polly cocked her head slightly in interest as she glanced back at her surroundings and then at the man. Her eyes narrowed slightly as she surveyed each, peeling back their shells to reveal a meaning. He felt as though her inspection could distill the entirety of his being. She knew him to be a dissatisfied loner who pined for women he'd never have and couldn't flag down a barkeep to save his life. You say you don't think like them, but how exactly is it that they think? She asked. Well, it's just that they don't think much, miss. I've watched the way they drink all day, playing cards and chuckling as their chips get scooped up by some other poor sod who's the last one to get their refill. The sooner they lose, the sooner they can stand up from the table to stumble into one of these dandy ladies here, then they wander on upstairs together and forget their worries. Polly pointed at the man's glass and said, So, how are you different? You don't have worries to forget. The man's pride was a bit wounded, but he was eager to explain himself to her. Miss Polly... I'll be the last to say that I have no regrets, but the last thing I'd be doing to forget is attempting to add further mistakes. The money I lose to alcohol pales to what can be spent in chips and whores. 
And, God forbid, I should gain a thing or two from that second transaction. She smiled at him, and he knew that she understood, and yet she teased him, giggling as she spoke. Then you don't like to take chances, I see. Or perhaps you're just not partial to the activities we use to entertain ourselves out here. His citizenry affronted, the man snarled back at her. I enjoy cards and sex as well as the next man, but I know how to read a loss before I sign up. Is there anything around here you can see yourself winning, besides a bout with the bottom of a glass? Polly grinned. She knew the fight she was picking was a sore spot for many western men. Dreams of ruling the plains with iron possessed most of them. A western ideal far more barbaric than those in the tightly packed cities and orderly towns of the east. And any man with an unemptied cylinder at his side with several empty glasses to his front was far removed from the alpha of his dreams. The man fully realized his current state was pretty pathetic, but he had the confidence of a bankrupt king. He returned her winning smile with charm all his own as he said, I figure I could win you, Miss Polly. She blushed. I don't know where you get that idea, sir. You haven't even told me your name. I don't need to. You can know me by my face he said. She looked surprised for a moment, but regained her spunk. Well, aren't you a mysterious fellow? May I ask, Mr. Man, why you're suddenly so interested in winning someone who doesn't think like you? He nodded, then said, It isn't that I hate people who think different than I do. When I said that, I may have misspoke a bit. The difference that sticks out to me is when someone just thinks less. And you, ma'am, you're not in that category. As he finished, he backed away from the bar and headed toward the saloon doors, passing his table as he went. The man swept up a dusty leather hat from his table and stopped by the door to pat it off. Polly stood from the bar and turned to watch him leave, her heart beating rapidly. Before he passed through the doors, she shouted after him. You're leaving? You never got that next glass of whiskey. Polly's dramatic shouting caught the attention of the distracted barkeep, who turned to assess the pair and cursed. He started shouting after them about how their nonsense was ruining the ambiance of the bar. But their lust was too powerful. The man took a step toward the doors as if he was leaving, then planted his other foot to the side, adopting a powerful, wide-legged stance. His head angled toward the floor. He raised his freshly dusted cowboy hat to the crown of his head and fitted it like a swim cap. Then, his butt cheeks tensing, his head swiveled over a powerful shoulder as he looked back at Polly with all the romance in the world before saying, I've got something better to do now. And like that, he was gone.
slotted doors to the saloon swung lazily on their hinges, one looser than the other, patterns alternating as each slowed at a, di <laughs> at a different pace. Polly watched the doors swing until the last one lay still. The man saw Polly at a distance. It was strange that the beauty looked even more appealing from afar. He couldn't help but feel a little bit guilty, as though that fact was an insult to the features he'd so quickly grown to adore. And yet, it was so, because as she stood far off in the darkness, she seemed to glow with the sort of radiance often afforded by an angel or some other creature of holy radiance. Her beacon guided him through the darkness that seemed to swallow them both, his hands brushing against tall grass that reached to his chest. The man glanced up and noticed the sky was filled not with stars, but small specks of brown that emitted no light. The sky that held these brown blots was a dark red, a blood red which didn't help to light the man's surroundings, but rather served as a full-bodied contrast against which he could make out the silhouettes of several trees, an outhouse, and a water tower. His eyes had grown too used to the faintness of the world around him to spare him when he turned back to his luminous desire. He grunted sourly and raised his hands to cover his eyes. You're late! The voice of his sweet Polly greeted him, sharper than usual. She had turned to him now, aware of his presence. What's the matter, Tom? I can't look at you. Can you cover yourself up? You don't like the way I look? No, I just can't see you, my angel. Polly giggled. Angel, I'm not sure about that. Come on, look at me. Tom's eyes had started to grow more accustomed to the light, even as his hands blocked most of it. He tried to inch his gaze over the sides of his upraised hands, permitting just the tiniest extra light to hit his strained pupils. What he saw through the tears that blurred his vision was his beloved Polly, as beautiful now as she had been when they first met. Her playful eyes met his for a moment, then fluttered down bashfully. His eyes did the same. He could tell the glow that had drawn him across the dark meadow emanated from the skin-tight clothes about her body. She shone and glistened. As his eyes adjusted more and more, Tom drank in each detail of her body. Her toned arms, her toned legs, her toned abs, her toned hands, her toned feet, toned nose, everything was toned, including her boobs. He'd always been into bodybuilders. Every detail pleased him. It seemed... As he grew more ecstatic, a smile spread 
thicker across Polly's face until her mouth turned into the shape of a U. Upset by this extreme proportion, Tom frowned and cocked his head. Polly, I wonder if you're quite all right. Am I all right? I don't know. Do you think I'm all right? Her smile waned and the glow of her outfit subsided as she spoke. He realized his poor choice in words and immediately backpedaled. No, that's not what I meant. Of course, you look amazing. I mean, look at how toned you are. He reached out to touch her taut muscles and felt dampness beneath his fingers. Worried he'd touched a sweaty woman without her consent, he withdrew his hand and found it covered in slightly glowing white. Slightly glowing white. He looked back to Polly and noticed a hand-sized gap in the liquid covering her left shoulder. Horrified, he held his ooze-covered hand out to her as he squealed, What is this? Polly spat. Bukaki! Tom screamed and sat up in his bed. Tom adjusted his trousers as he walked down the dusty street toward the saloon. Last night's dream ruined his favorite pants, and now he'd been forced to wear an older pair that had grown too loose for even a belt to fix. But today was a new day. Yesterday he'd met a woman he would die for, and today he was going to win her over. Tom spent the rest of his afternoon and evening after their encounter trying to hone his romantic craft. A small mirror he snatched from his sister before leaving for the West served as his coach. And after a few hours, he was sure his smile would entrance a prairie dog. The nightmare put a damper on his positivity, but some waves of positivity are too strong to be waylaid. Besides, this man needed to get laid. As he stepped onto the wooden porch that bordered the front of the saloon, Tom heard the sharp neigh of a horse. Turning, he saw a great white stallion rearing beside the saloon's hitching post. It was a magnificent beast, with polished hooves that shone jet black and salt-white mane. The stunning display of black and white gave the horse a quality as though it was ripped straight out of a film, and its rider, clad all in black, enhanced that quality. He dismounted from his stunning companion and fastened its reins to the post. The rider was intimidating, standing above Tom by two heads at least. And he was breathing heavily, perhaps more so than his horse. He grabbed his black leather hat from his head and pressed it into the hands of the other, who had struck so suddenly with fear and awe. Hold on to that for me, amigo. With a pat on Tom's shoulder, the rider rushed into the saloon. Tom stood slack-jawed for a moment still staring at the horse, one he'd dreamed about for years. He didn't even own one. Recovering from his stupor, 
Tom began to piece together who the rider in black was. While in Stonewater for some time, he'd spent most of it avoiding those he could, but that hadn't stopped him from hearing stories. He'd heard of bandits and scoundrels. He'd even seen many men assaulting the barkeep or the women for free services. None of them had ever scared Tom, and he ran with men sturdy enough to share his disposition. But even they knew of a man they never dared speak poorly of. They described him as an outlaw who possessed a bounty five times that of Bobbo Mikowski. And Bobbo had it rough. This valuable outlaw was a man who wore only black, and in the western heat, that was the sort of thing that drew attention. Of course, attention was no worry to this criminal, as he had every sheriff tilting their heads to the ground and locking their doors as he passed. The rumor was that he'd taken a sheriff's daughter to bed one night against her will and shot the sheriff as he tried to intercede. Crazy part of it was that he'd killed the lawman mid copulation. Unsure of how a devil could manage this stunt, Tom tried to remember the criminal's name. As he turned the hat in his hands, he noticed something written under the brim. It read, Bad Jack. Of course it did. The nickname clicked in place, and Tom knew the saloon was in for a bad afternoon. Thinking only of his beloved Polly, he hurried inside. The tables inside the saloon held the usual assortment of glasses, cards, and chips, but the chairs were empty. Every man in the bar hugged the walls, eyeing the dark-clad newcomer's sheathed revolver. The barkeep was on the floor. Blood seeped from his mouth as he dragged his battered face from the planks, crawling as far as he could from Jack. Jack stood in front of the bar, his duster folded back to reveal his hand, resting on the ebony handle of a monochromatic revolver set in a hip holster. He was shouting at someone he had pinned against the bar. The soothing voice of the criminal Tom had met outside was replaced with a harsh growl as Jack assaulted his victim with fearsome syllables. Tom's eyes searched the room for his future wife as Jack jerked his victim away from the bar and toward the stairs. That's when Tom noticed the figure being pushed by the outlaw was a woman. His woman. His heart attempted an escape from his chest, but he held it fast with his left hand as his right wandered to the gun by his side. Fury and rage rose within him threatening to bring a second outlaw to the saloon today. But his fear won. Even as Polly screamed, Tom's legs began to give out beneath him. Polly and the man in black mounted the stairs. Jack kept yanking at Polly. She wouldn't give up. She wasn't like the other women. Stop! I don't want to! Let me go! A few moments later... They heard a door close on the floor above, and Tom sank to his rear. So it's true, 
Tom heard one of the other men whisper. Somebody told me she was his. A second man agreed with him, and so did a third. You'd have to be a crazy son of a bitch to go after a girl like that. What did she think she was doing here? The barkeep stood up, regaining some of his dignity. He had a bar to supervise. Talk about crazy. She was screaming after that guy yesterday. Everyone turned to look at Tom, who looked up as soon as he realized he was the topic of conversation. Hey, guy, you gotta go up there and stand up for her. The group snickered. The idea of this loner facing down the famed Bad Jack seemed as comical as a chimp on horseback. Or how about you go up there and ask him if he needs help? You like that? <laughs> the laughter grew more comfortable, the tide of fear waning. Tom reached up to a table that stood beside him and clutched one of the empty glasses, dragging it to the edge and letting it fall. All laughter ceased, and the barkeep scowled as the crash of glass breaking stung everyone's ears. The barkeep stalked over to where Tom sat, drawing a knife from his pocket. You broke my glass. I haven't lost a glass in three months. Trouble rolls into my bar today. And even he doesn't break a glass, but then you, my cheapest customer, purposely shoves one of my finest glasses straight to the floor? You're out of your mind. As the barkeep's hand pulled back for a stab, Tom pulled his revolver from its holster and fired. Blood spattered across the floor and tables as the body of the barkeep fell backwards. Tom let the gun hang loose to his side, smoking slightly, as he rose to look over his opponent. Mushy red flesh lined the hole that drove its way through the man's temple. The hole led clear through to the floor. Your mind's out of your you, friend. Tom chuckled. He'd wanted to enact violent judgment on this saloon, but he'd never imagined executing its owner. This was just the beginning, though, as he'd decided he did need to do something about the scum that took his woman and the rest of these bastards. But he didn't have enough time for them now, or enough bullets. He rushed to the stairs. Upstairs, Tom could hear the two of them behind a shut, white door. Jack was shouting something angrily as Polly squealed in defiance. Tom slammed his back against the wall by the door, breathing heavily. The adrenaline of the moment had given him the courage to draw and use his pistol in the name of love, and now he hoped it would give him the power to face down the beast of legend. So different a creature from the men in this little town. So feared, and yet just the same. He came into a place where no one wanted him, 
or cared about him. He found a woman, and he made her suffer him. Typical. Now Tom wanted to make him pay. He only wished now that he had stopped for a drink on his way upstairs. Tom sucked in a deep breath, turned to the door, and kicked it in. Bad Jack whirled around to face the intruder and immediately discharged six shots from his revolver. Tom gagged briefly and began coughing as he fell to the floor. Daddy, what did you do? Polly came over to the man her father had shot six times, pressing her soft hand against his chest. You shot him. I'll say I did. Check the holes. Six, right? Bad Jack chuckled. Damn it, Dad. This isn't a joke. I loved this man, Polly cried. Jack sauntered over to the bloody mess lying against a cracked plaster wall. He kneeled, putting his eyes level with the drooping lids of the soon-to-be dead man. Where'd my hat go? That'll teach you to lose my property. And, uh, looks like you took a liking to my little treasure. Can't be having that now, can we? I suppose we killed two birds with one stone here. Jack flicked his finger against Tom's forehead. I don't need you to keep me safe. I wanted to make myself a husband, Polly whined. You won't be finding any husbands around here, darling. These men are all pigs, hungry for anything better than the slop they're used to feeding on. He tussled her hair. Come on, let's get out of here. Polly's eyes glistened as she looked up at her father, consumed by idolatry. Oh, Dad, you're so wise. He was so hot and tan. I guess I just lost myself. Yeah, sometimes we can be too quick to judge people. That kind of thing hurts everybody. Tom listened as the steps of his beloved and her father left the room and receded down the stairs. He heard Polly's screams as they found the dead barkeep. As his breaths drew shallow, Tom chuckled. His victim must have looked as bad or worse than he did. He remembered what Polly had called him. Hot and tan. And then he realized what a piece of shit he'd been this whole time. Beautiful. Nice little gap there. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris, what did you think? Yeah, so I really enjoyed this story. It was quite a ride, like a roller coaster ride of emotions here. <laughs> so. Yeah, we have that uh, opening with this mysterious protagonist. We don't even know his name. He's just the man. Mm. And I find it interesting that we kind of, like, we experience the story through our protagonist here, who we find out his name, Tom, through a dream. Um, 
But I find it interesting also, though, that we kind of experience it through Polly, because we're trying to figure out who this guy is during this whole, like, romantic comedy interaction that they have. Um, yeah. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, real quick question here, though. Where did you get the inspiration for the dream sequence? Because that was spot on. <laughs> Not going to lie. That, that shit was great. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, not much inspiration from that, aside from the fact that uh, I've written a dream sequence before. And uh, when I did that, I mean, I've just I've kept dream journals before. And uh, once, once you do enough of that, you kind of get like, uh, <laughs> you just have to go full on wacky half the time, <laughs> then ground some of the actions and realism. Uh, while at the same time plunging other things into, like, such a deep sense of mystery that they're never, ever explained. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I also tried to play a little bit with uh, Tom's, like... <laughs> it definitely breaks the fourth wall, because we have some things that Tom would never have experienced in the West. Um but also, just, uh, I, I forgot what I was talking about. See, it's like <laughs> I was in a dream sequence just now. Um, oh, man, it's uh, spreading. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, just kind of from previous writing of that stuff. And uh, in one fiction story that I wrote, uh, I basically took an entire dream that I had had, and I put it into it, because it was kind of a stream of consciousness thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. That's basically where I got it from, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I also find found it interesting that, uh, really, that dream sequence is where we learn pretty much the most about Tom, like, about his, uh, like, we learn his name, and we learn, like, basically his standing towards, like, love, I suppose, where he wants like that singular kind of thing where not shared relationship you know at least that's uh, uh -huh. what i got from it um yeah he just wanted a girl who's <laughs> muscly <laughs> yeah <laughs> and oh man the tone everything is toned yeah, everything definitely was toned in the dream anyway. Oh, I, I felt like there were biceps on her eyeballs. Yeah, like, I just, like, for any anime people out there, when he was describing her, I was basically thinking of one of the characters from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's essentially just these, like, overly masculine men just, like, posing in all these different ways. And they're just yeah. all, like, bustling with muscles and stuff, and it's just hilarious. So that's yeah, the it, image I got from that description. Yeah, I was definitely trying to make Tom seem a little bit like a deviant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a lot of fun to write. And, uh, yeah, there were a lot of times in this story. I shouldn't say a lot, because there's not a whole lot to the story, but there were moments where I just kind of... Uh, digressed into like insanity kind of a little <laughs> bit just like why is this happening when the rest of the story seems kind of normal mm -hmm. and uh yeah the dream sequence really served as like a great place for me to like blow that off yeah 
Yeah, um, along those lines, though, like, it's, uh, I feel like it's a good idea to have that for Tom's character, because he thinks he's, like, a holier-than-thou kind of person, like, he's better than everyone else in that saloon, but, like, mm-hmm. those moments of insanity are, like, little hints, kind of, that show that he's pretty much an asshole like everyone, he, he's not actually better than them in any way, he just thinks he is to himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, um, and then, uh, so the, the, uh, Father Jack, where'd you get the thoughts for his character from? I'm kind of curious, because I had a similar character in my story, so I'm wondering where you got yours from. Right, yeah, it's just kind of that Western trope, isn't it, of the, the villain all clad in black, and it's just, he's straight ripped out of that stereotypical, uh, bad guy but <laughs> i i really enjoyed recording his first line where he hands his hat to tom and uh i i just like sounded so stupid delivering that line and i was like that's perfect and i don't think i matched it later on but uh mm-hmm. yeah he, he, i kind of tried to balance him with my own style by making him intimidating but also making him just like like the the lines he has at the end don't make a whole lot of sense. They kind of do. There's like a little bit of a message you could try to bring out of it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he's a pretty simple guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the uh, one-liners that you tried to throw him uh, when he's talking to Tom at the end. I think it was that scene. Yeah, um, uh-huh. where he's. Uh, yeah, just kind of making fun of him that he basically killed him. It was interesting. Yeah, yeah. basically everybody was an asshole. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, even Polly, really. Like, although hers is, like, a less of an, like, intentional asshole kind of thing and more of a, like, response to her father being an asshole and being, uh, like, one of those helicopter parents kind of things. Yeah. And imposing that yeah. on her. And it's, uh, that was really one of my development tricks, again, was just, at first you thought she was a nice girl, and he had the dream sequence, and was just obsessed with her, and she wasn't a prostitute, which was nice that that was, you know, not a twist at the end or something like that, Mm -hmm. you were worried about her, but, uh, she wasn't what Tom was expecting either, Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like the, uh, subser- uh, oh god, I cannot speak, the subversion of expectations that you did in here, where, um, like, because you built it up in, uh, like, the middle of the story to be, like, kind of a romantic comedy kind of thing, but then you throw in that hint of tragedy at the end with the death of our protagonist, and I mean, that's, uh, that's a really, like, nice twist that you got there, like, he barges in, he's gonna be all heroic, and then it's just, it's just over for him. <laughs> and Polly yeah. doesn't even care that it's over for him like she cares for a second which plays into the romantic side of it and then she's like oh nope I don't care anymore so makes it even more of a tragedy at the end yeah it really was uh, I mean I started the story knowing what character I wanted Tom to be mm-hmm. and just kind of like chauvinistic a little bit a little bit like uh better holier than now kind of deal um but i wrote 
the first paragraph, uh, basically about him taking a shit in the <laughs> latrine. And uh, I realized that I wanted to take the imagery of the shit from the beginning and link it through to the end, and that just kind of ended up warping into Tom's death. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, did you did you basically plan Tom's death from the beginning then, or was that a later decision that you decided to add in? It was it was pretty soon after I wrote the poop scene mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was like, yeah. Yeah, this is how it's going to happen. And I actually, I failed pretty fantastically, I think, but I don't know how you received it. But I was, since I was trying to kind of make that like cyclical plot a little bit, just within the symbolism, I tried to match up the adjectives of describing the piece of shit floating in the liquid in the murk of the actual outhouse to his death later on and what that ended up being was just hot and tan (laughs) (laughs) like i wanted to say like cracked or full of holes or something like that but it didn't really like i don't know many people who poop a poop with holes in it you know (laughs) Yeah, uh, personally, with that symbolism, I didn't really uh, get that connection myself, but that might be just because, like, I'm not reading it. I usually personally get, like, symbols and stuff better uh, if I read the text instead of listening to it, because you can refer back easier and all that. Um, So it might be pretty good. I just am unaware of it. But uh, what I got from it at the end, being hot and tan and stuff, was them being, like, essentially like every other person in that saloon, like looking like them more so and not being different Mm. in a special snowflake and all that i mean that too definitely meant to imply that Mm -hmm. definitely 100 percent. no (laughs) doubt that was the intent super intentional wink (laughs) but yeah uh i'm glad you enjoyed it Mm -hmm. all around i hope that I hope that everybody else enjoyed it. Um, If they didn't, well, then uh, we're just both hot and tan pieces of shit as well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, for for more of this kind of uh, show, uh, just tune back in next month. Um, We'll be focusing on another game. Uh, We still haven't actually set what it is. It's going to be shortly, though. Uh, Probably by the time this podcast goes up, we will have the actual schedule for the next half a year, roughly. Um, And that's only because uh, video games aren't necessarily announced through the entire year yet. So we'll see what's coming up, and the schedule will Normally try to keep six months ahead, I think, so it'll be a constantly developing schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find that schedule on our Facebook page. Um, it's just a Game Stories Reloaded Facebook page. Um, and also, anybody looking to write um, along that schedule um, should go ahead and shoot us an email at gamestoriesreloaded at gmail.com. Um, it's spelled exactly 
the way the podcast is, no spaces, just game stories reloaded at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, go ahead and send us uh, some of your details, your interests to write, um, and let us know if you've finished a story. Um, as far as the actual recording of it goes, if you think you're good at reading, <laughs> hopefully um, you are, um, and just go ahead and record it yourself and then let me know you're done and we can figure out how to get that from you. Or you can ask one of us to read it, um, and I'm also going to reach out to some actors as well to see if any of them would be interested in reading stories. And uh, we'll try to work that out that way. But uh, yeah, just go ahead and shoot us an email if you are interested. Mm -hmm. And if you have interest in writing, just please do, because I would love to see your talents. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the big things about this podcast is uh, we'll try to have at least two stories every month, but uh, we'd enjoy even somebody sending us two paragraphs. Mm. And that's something that I can easily read, Chris could easily read, uh, if you didn't have somebody to record that real quick. Um, Hell, it yeah, could be like poems too. Like, not yeah. even just restricted to like stories, like poetry about the certain whatever we're doing, that would be cool too. Yeah, give us... Uh, Two stanzas of a crackdown poem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we're doing crackdown, which we won't. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, if it's a current game and you want to write a little piece on it, uh, go ahead and do so. And uh, we will try to have like intermittent episodes, which are kind of a catch-all episode. So that would be fun, too. Mm -hmm. uh, should also clarify that uh, we are not writing fan fiction as much as we are writing fiction in a similar universe to the games that we're covering. So try to keep that in mind and uh, also keep it fairly clean. <laughs> <laughs> you, you saw how clean ours were, especially mine wasn't that clean, but we're not looking for some. We're not like, looking for uh, straight-up pornography. Right, or torture porn or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, horror probably be okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially when we're doing like a horror-themed episode like Resident Evil, which that might be next month. It could be. You never know. You never know. Um, all right. Uh, Chris, you got anything else? Uh, no, that's pretty much it, I think. Uh, just thank you guys for listening in to this here podcast and enjoying our story time, hopefully. Uh, yeah, that's about it from me. All right, and do we have a... Do we want to do a special sign-off? Uh, anything we want to try to do regularly? Oh, man. I wish I had thought about this earlier. Mm, mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll try next episode. But for now, keep it real. <laughs> the realist. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch us next time. See you guys.
Thank you.